Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine this. You're stranded on an island forever. But don't freak out because you get to bring one dish with you. Your desert island dish. What is it? Every week, your hosts, Paul and Tegan, that's us. Hello. Hello. We'll ask this question. They'll chat with and torment a literal raft of guests on the island who'll dish up stories, gossip, and culinary secrets. But they all have one big thing in common. They bloody love food. Welcome to Dish Island. Hello and welcome to another episode. I'm Tegan Diggenbotham. I'm Paul Verhoeven. And Paul, have you cooked anything interesting this week? Maybe tried something new? That's a really nice setup because the fact is you're the only person I cook for anymore, because, <laughs> right? So I'll, I'll cook things and then you pretty much just have to eat them. But I saw one of the chefs over at Bon Appetit was doing this Instagram story and I was just like spooling through. I didn't think anything of it. And I had that thing where it grabbed my imagination. Mm-hmm. And hours later, I got off and bought the ingredients and I cooked up this pasta and it was so good. I think I've had it four times since then. We've um, eaten a lot of it, but it is brilliant. And all it's one of those really great pastas where you can tweak little things, yeah. t- talk people through it. Okay, so basically the pasta that you use is a strozza bread, which is those two little kind of curls, and I know that I sounded like Mario from the Mario Brothers just then, but that's okay. It's alright, just lean in. Yeah, so it's you fry up some capers and some garlic and some diced uh, artichoke hearts Mm -hmm. from the jar, and you kind of, uh, you know, you you, you put those in the pan with some oil, and then you pop in some cherry tomatoes and sort of blacken those a little bit, and then squish them, and then he says that you got to just throw through some random seafood. Yeah. So I went with mussels and, you know, um, I chucked in some squid at one point and we kind of rolled that around and then you throw in the pasta and then you piff in heaps, I mean, heaps of fresh dill and like you squeeze in a whole lemon. And it was like being in the Mediterranean. It was incredible. And as the weather warms up here in Melbourne, mm. it just felt like such a summery, light, welcome to warmth sort of <laughs> dish. It was amazing. Yeah. But speaking of first, Paul, this is a momentous episode for yeah. two reasons. Mm. To our lovely listeners, you probably noticed something a little bit different at the beginning of the episode or on our podcast artwork which is that we are now going by the name hmm. Dish Island. Yeah, it's a bit of a rebrand. Uh, <laughs> here's the thing. You know in the first episode how we sort of floated the fact that, you know, the Desert Island dish as a concept had already been established. It's, yeah. al- it's already out there, right? It was right? a shock to us, but we... <laughs> We went with it. Yeah, I mean, you know, we got a little panicky, and we're not going to lie, <laughs> but that's okay because branding is very important. So we realised that the Desert Island dish theme, not entirely original. Mm-hmm. Then we've also discovered that it turns out every second podcast in existence uses the word dish. Or is called dish, dish. in some way. So obviously we've decided to, yeah, just do a slight rebrand. And half of you thought that the show was called Dish Island anyway. The Instagram account is <laughs> Dish Island. Dish Island. Oh and God. we invite people to our Dish Island. So you know what? It makes sense. We are now Dish Island. And Paul, I'm feeling really bloody excited about this. It's the best rebrand since the Terminator was changed to the Terminator from Angry Robot Man. It's like, just call it Terminator. It makes so much more sense. 
<laughs> but there's another big first this week, Paul. Mm. Everyone who listened last week will know that we have a very special guest on today. However, he's done something wild. He has chosen the same desert island dish as one of our previous Yes. And now he didn't realize that he was doing this, okay? He hadn't listened to the episode in question, didn't realize that this dish was already on our table in the big, long feasting hall on our island. Hang on, we don't have a feasting hall. We do now. There's a feasting hall. Look, I'm just stunned that you're adding bits of architecture to this island without my permission. I mean, I thought we had some sort of quorum going here, like a, you know, like a, like we all agreed on things. It's a day of first. Okay, Paul, and now there is a feasting hall. We're going to have a double-up dish for the very first time ever. I'm excited. Well, let me introduce our guest. Today's guest is a TV presenter, an author, and a superb cook. You'll have seen him hosting The Cook-Up with Adam Liao on SBS. Damn, his name's... <laughs> Who could it be? Um, surprise, surprise, it's Heston Blumenthal. Uh, or you've seen him winning season two of MasterChef. He's turned out so many incredible best-selling cookbooks, and he's got several new amazing shows cooking up right now, the bloody show-off. So please welcome Adam Liao. Thanks for joining us. I'm sorry to pull you away from your very busy, busy life because you had a lot on the horizon until we kidnapped you. You just announced a new television show. Congratulations. I did. I did. Thank you very much. This is going to be starting soon on Channel 9. Good Food Kitchen is what it's called. And actually, it's something that I have to <laughs> kind of be a bit sheepish about. I'm announcing another television show today as well. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not in charge of these announcements. These are shows that I've made in the past that are now all just all of a sudden being announced altogether. So there's there's one called Adam and Poe's Malaysia in Australia that I'm doing with Poling Yo for SBS and mm-hmm. um, Asia Food Network in Singapore. And that is being announced today. And Good Food Kitchen that I'm doing for nine was announced yesterday. What's, do you not have enough going on? I mean, <laughs> we were already, our whole angle was going to be like, wow, are you the busiest man in food in Australia? You you really are. Holy shit. Yeah, at the, at the moment, there's a fair bit on. When you're in a kitchen, obviously you're multitasking. You know, you've got like 15 things on different burners. Is that what you're doing with your life right now? Sometimes. You know, the... the I, I guess I'm I'm a TV cook kind of guy, so I'm not, I'm not in the I'm not by the stove every single day when I'm not filming. So um, the other show I do, the third one, the, the cook up <laughs> that I do for SBS, we start filming that again in a couple of weeks, and so then I will be on the on the burners every day, yeah, uh, filming that one. But um, there's a lot of pre-production and uh, recipe development and things that happen, and you know most of my cooking is is I just cook for my family. So that's and, and that's the way I like it, to be honest. Right, but you sound very organized. I mean, because when I've look, when I cook, it's a garbage fire. There's just stuff everywhere. There's no rhyme or reason. You I'm, blow up the kitchen I every time. I literally have to walk up to you going, I'm sorry, I exploded the kitchen again. Whereas, are you the kind of person who psychologically has like 15 ramekins with different ingredients portioned out? Or do you just kind of approach every day, one day at a time? It's not clinical the way I cook. So, I'm not very much a ramekin portioner, but I do think that. Um, you can kind of tell, and I, I don't mean this as a slight pull, <laughs> how capable someone is in the kitchen by how clean it is while they're doing it. You know, <laughs> if, if I get like, and I'm not saying that I'm, I'm immune to this. If, if I get a bit out of control, the kitchen looks out of control. But if right. I'm in control, the kitchen is always clean. And I, I always remember, you know, my grandma, um, cooking and there was no point, like she could turn out literally 30 dishes a day. And there would be 
the kitchen would be clean the entire time from like prep to cooking to cleaning to to finishing up. There was no point where the kitchen was dirty. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that's kind (laughs) of a – sometimes I worry that people who are messy – it's a kind of psychological self selfishness. They they want to do the fun part, but they don't want to do the kind of they don't want to do the you know the actual the unpleasant stuff, which is the cleaning. It's not you know you don't get to eat the cleaning at the end. It's not the it's not the fun part. It's not the showy part. Do you think maybe it comes down to having a psychological mindset of being a bit, you know, like um a bit of a team player, someone that doesn't want to create chaos down the road for other people. I, I think it comes down to a a modern malaise of cooking where we kind of have misunderstood what cooking is. Like cooking is cleaning, you know, right. most of cooking is cleaning, most of cooking is chopping, and yet we seem to think that cooking is putting stuff into a pan. To, to me, that's the smallest part of actually cooking is the applying heat to it, but it's the prep and the cooking. It used to be this all-encompassing skill that people had, and now we've decided that, you know, you're, you're right, you know, we only want that tiny little part of it when it, you know, a generation or two before us, they understood that cooking was gardening and cooking was curing meats and cooking was brewing your own soy sauce or whatever it happens to be. And it was this, this, um, I guess, holistic skill of providing. Uh, and, and we've decided that's, um, dinner parties. That is so interesting. And it's, I'm thinking of a band, right? Where you've got different instruments. Everyone wants to be the guitar soloist. They want to <laughs> be up the front, just like, like on their knees with the crowd bang. But actually, you need a drummer, right? You need a roadie. You need a publicist. You need all these other people. And you, you photograph your own food. So you've kind of added this extra step to that process. Like, what's that like? I avoided that for ages. You know, I, I think I'm, I'm by nature fairly contrarian. And so when, uh, you know, I, I didn't have a smartphone until quite, quite recently. By quite recently, I, I mean 10, 11 years ago. So right. it's not, I'm not a, a total Luddite, but back when, you know, I used to live in Japan and, and the phone technology there that we, they basically had about 15 years ago what we have today. You know, I remember the first <laughs> time I was walking along with a friend and he was doing what Google Maps was does for us now or mm. and you just you know walk along and you go oh we've got to turn right here to go to the restaurant kind of thing and i remember seeing that this was you know before the days of the iphone before before smartphones and he had it on his his little flip phone and it it was following us as we were walking down the street i was like what is this magic you know it, it, it's so normal now that it sounds weird for it to to be weird but i was absolutely blown away this was you know my phone could uh text and that was pretty much it you know in japan you don't text because the it just wasn't not a thing but you do send emails from your phone and i remember being blown away that you could send emails from your phone at that point and then this guy's pulling out the uh the the google maps um five years before google maps was a thing on that because you know paul was talking about photographing your food and you said that you'd resisted that for a long time. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, she just bringing me back to the point as I went up on the panel, so I, I do appreciate that. <laughs> so, the point of that story was that I was a late adopter to that, not because I'm a late adopter to technology, but I am a, a fairly early adopter, but I just don't like doing what everyone, else, what everyone else is doing. So, when Instagram and things started and people were photographing their food, I was like, you know, this is, this is my gig. You know, I, I do food as a gig. I don't need to to, to photograph um, my own food uh, because I guess, you know, I write cookbooks and the photographer does that. I like the, the professionals to do it. But then I started to do it and I really enjoyed it and now I do it just to enjoy it. And I lie in bed and I look at photographs of food that I've eaten in the past. I'm like, oh, that was a good meal. 
Because <laughs> oh, we're struggling because, you know, we've started up this podcast and naturally that goes hand in hand with, you know, to get it out there, you've got to have a really nice Instagram and all that sort of stuff. And it's about food, so we should probably photograph our damn food. And I think it's the, been the most tricky aspect because as soon as we've cooked something that is beautiful and fresh, we just want to eat it. And the idea of then us trying to figure out the lighting and, and you know, spin the bowl that way and no sprinkle the thing on that way so it looks fancier, it's it's one of the elements I'm really struggling with because really? it, it also seems to me uh, to be slightly counterintuitive to what I'm trying to do, which is I use cooking now as this way to disconnect from that internet social media space and it's it's about you know nourishing myself and then to put that that spin on it again that guys of will people like the photograph of the <laughs> actually one of my best photographed pieces of food yet uh was your marmalade custard cake oh nice. yeah which i don't know if i did very well but it looked very nice in the photograph <laughs> But I'm, I'm struggling with this aspect. So seeing every night you're plating up these dishes and making them look so fantastic, it is it is very inspiring to see that. Thank you. Thank you. But if I can offer you some advice in that regard, it's find a spot where the lighting is good and just keep putting it in that spot. Like I, I literally have a, a an old antique French cutting board that I have sitting by a window uh, in the room that's next to my kitchen. Mm. And as soon as I cook a dish... I take it, like the camera's already set up there, take it in, plonk it on the cutting board, press the button on the camera, take it in, you know, it is it is a 90-second process photographing my food, only because I know that at the time of day that we have dinner, which does vary um, uh, from, well, the, the time doesn't vary, but the light varies from winter to summer, obviously, mm. at that time of day. Um I kind of just have the same setup so that uh, I don't have to think about it all that much. And I, in terms of making the food look good for camera, it's just make it look how you want to eat it, which is how, what you're going to do anyway when you're um, uh, making dinner, and then just photograph it like that. I think when, when food looks how you want it to be when you eat it, that's when it looks best in, in a photo. I find it so funny that on the iPhone, um, every year, it will assemble, without my consent, Adam, it will assemble this sort of montage to cloying music, like my most precious <laughs> memories of the year. I like the idea that you're <laughs> just going to get this like beautiful music video of just meals that you ate throughout the year. I mean, It's, it's, it's so actually romantic. quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice thing when that pops up and you go, oh, what did I eat in August 2021? <laughs> uh, that's so jaunty. I mean, what was the... I'm just thinking about these... These things that you're doing, right? Because you are you are churning out so many recipes and so many meals, not just for your family, but for you know TV, print, online. You've got like 900 cooking shows at this point. I mean, how do you keep this interesting for yourself? I mean, this sounds like a in the bedroom metaphor, but how do you keep things? <laughs> how do you keep things exciting and spontaneous? Role play. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, a strap on whisk, I, I, you know. <laughs> it reminds me of so I was I was teaching my son to skateboard on the weekend right. and. I hurt myself, so that wasn't great. But the way I explained it to him is because he's very analytical. He likes to, you know, he, he'll, he'll sit at the skate park and watch guys doing everything and try, and you can see him trying to kind of work out theoretically how to do it before he gets onto it. Mm. And the, what I said to him was, you know, think of this as a puzzle, but for your body. Like you're not going to work out the puzzle of skateboarding with your mind. You've got to work it out with your body. You know, you've got to know when, when you feel like you're going to fall. On a drop-in, that's a good feeling. You know, when you're walking along and you feel like you're going to fall over, 
that's a bad thing. But if you're dropping into a, a quarter pipe or something, then you do need to feel like you're going to fall because then your, your your balance is going to be in the right spot. So the, with, when it comes to cooking, I kind of see that as a puzzle as well, you know, and that's what keeps it interesting for me is I, I don't go, oh, let's make something interesting or, or let's make something tasty. So, so that's kind of how I approach cooking is I, I look at it as a puzzle and mm. rather than trying to make something that's tasty – I mean, obviously it needs to be tasty, but that's kind of the, the, the baseline of where you want to go when you're writing a recipe. I'll, mm. I'll try and solve a problem with it. So I guess, you know, if I, if I want uh, a meal that's going to be just from the pantry or a meal that's going to be something that only uses one pan or something that you can create in modules so that if somebody likes it spicy, you can have part of it that's spicy and part of it that's not you know it's it's there's always these different ways to cut up something as simple as food you know it's it's like i, I guess similar to playing guitar or skateboarding or, or anything really mm. there's always the more the deeper you get into it the the more interesting it is and the more angles that you can see in it i always remember this thing from from year 10 physics and it was just, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, the teachers hung over, so they just put a video on and <laughs> they let you watch it. But it was probably right. the, one of the most interesting videos. And he was, he was this uh, American physics teacher. And I don't remember what else he was talking about because I, I wasn't very good at physics. Sure. Um, but he, he was explaining why people should care about physics um, because obviously it's not everyone's favorite subject. And he just said... He, Imagine you're walking through a garden and you're walking through a garden and you're seeing, oh, that's a nice flower or that's a, you know, that's an interesting tree or look how big that tree is. Imagine then you're walking through a garden as a botanist and you're like, oh, wow, I've never seen that species of plant next to that one. Or I can see why they planted those two together. Or I can see that that flower only blooms at for three days every five years or something. You know, you the more you know about it, the more interesting it becomes. And so you can find uh, this interest in it in many different ways as you go along. And that's how I kind of feel with cooking because I, I guess my style of cooking is very different to, to one of a chef where a chef might come up with a dish for a menu and then they cook that dish every day for a month or a year or forever, you know, depending on the type of restaurant mm -hmm. it is. Um I'm doing new things every single day, and that's kind of what I like about what I do because you know, I haven't quite worked it out that uh, – well, I, I think I write more recipes than anyone else in the country. Mm. <laughs> um, I'm fairly sure. I can't think of anyone else who's writing sort of 800 recipes a year. But um, uh, I, that's what I like about it. Like I, I, I don't – if I was writing five recipes a year, I don't think I'd enjoy what I do. It's funny that you talk about, though, that – that approach you have because one of the things I love about the cook-up is that you skew this line between being both the the most informed person in the room and also the person who is just consistently learning and utterly delighted by everything that your guests are bringing in and it's it's a it's a fascinating role that you've carved out that you are able to wear both those hats you're able to be in that space both the student and the teacher and it as a viewer it just it it's it's so comforting because I think that, you know, no matter where you're at in your food journey, you know, for Paul and I, we feel like we're such novices. We're right at the beginning. So being able to see somebody who's still learning but also knows so much it is, it, it does encourage you to keep going. Do you find that you are, yeah, consistently 
overwhelmed by how much there is still to learn? Do you feel like you're getting closer to a point where you know everything? Am I reaching enlightenment or omnipotence? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, ask me about Afghan cuisine or ask me about, you know, what's on a family dinner table in Uzbekistan or Ecuador. You know, there is so much to food all around the world because food is so connected with culture and geography and history and every other aspect of the human condition kind of ends up reflected in your food. You know, what's on my dinner table each night is very different from what's on my neighbor's dinner table each night. Even though we, we, we live in the same neighborhood, we have a, a similar heritage, we do similar things. And, you know, it, the, the thing I like about the cook up is for most of my career, it's been very much, uh, solitary in terms of what I cook. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if I'm traveling around Japan, I'm the only one that's cooking. You know, there's no one else on the show that's doing a, a heck of a lot of cooking other than, you know, the, the restaurants that I go to and things like that. But for the cook-up, every single episode, I get two really interesting chefs or comedians or whoever. I, I get to look at what peop- other people are actually cooking. It's, it's, it's a truly fascinating thing. So if, I, I don't think it's put on. I think it's pretty genuine because I am quite amazed at, uh, at what people cook and um, how they do it because it's always different. I think it's really interesting in that you said you come up with, yeah, like 800 recipes a year. When people go to invent things, there's generally two approaches. They can either look at a need that needs to be filled and then they create a thing to you know uh, accompany that need or they take a thing that already exists and put a clock in it so <laughs> when you come up with a recipe how often are you coming up with something that is wildly new and how often are you taking something that exists and putting a figurative clock in it i would say never coming up with something that is new you know uh frankly that would be too much work <laughs> uh, I, I, there there is really there is nothing new in cooking um there is there are things that kind of surprise me at times and things that I kind of... Well, I, I will say that one thing that there is in cooking is kind of a lack of innovation <laughs> because we just we do something one way because our mum did it or our dad did it that way or our grandma did it that way. Mm. And then we just keep doing it that way because we don't want to think about it. Um, so I, I guess in some cases I do come up with something new because I think... You know, this is how it's always been done to make this, get this particular result. But what if we just did it a completely different? What if we just stopped being snobs about it and tried to to really get the shortest line between points A and B? Um, but yeah, sometimes I also just whack a clock in it. <laughs> I, I just, I find that so interesting that you are acknowledging that there's no new things. I mean, does that not... Well, it's the same in stories. I mean, there are only... What do they say? There's only seven stories that we're just retelling yeah. the same stories again and again and again. Yeah. I guess what I wonder then is in rehashing these recipes, in putting this new life on recipes, is it culturally important that we do this, that we keep handing these stories, these recipes down from generation to generation and we keep these things alive? Or is it that we're all, we are all just hungry for new things? Consumerism, we want the new book, the new thing, the new contraption to sit in our kitchen. And it is just part of that. Because I like to think that it's the former. I think that this storytelling through recipes mm. is is vital. I, I, I think so too, you know. And, and I, I guess part of the, the reason that people think what I do is more innovative than it is, is that I guess I sit... I have a personal history that is probably very different to other people. So I, I do sit between a lot of different cultures. And, and when you do, when you're in that position, you can see things that are similar 
between the two, and I'm not just talking about, you know, putting soy sauce into a burnt butter or something like that, but you can see these different cultural ways that particular issues in domestic cookery are solved. And then you go, well, what if you tried that in a different way? You know, like putting Vegemite into spag bowl, for example, you know, just because we have a source of umami in Australia that is common in everyone's kitchen, it's doing the same thing as someone in Japan putting soy sauce or a, you know, a, a Western Japanese fish sauce into uh, a stew, for example, is exactly the same, I guess, taste process mm. as adding Vegemite to your spag bowl. And so, you know, you could call that an innovation, but it is kind of the same thing dressed up slightly differently. And so because I feel like I know a number of different cuisines relatively well, you can see those similarities a lot um, e- more easily, but I'm not saying that I invented any of them. You know? mm. So would they have to basically invent, uh, not invent, or discover a new food or a new animal? Like let's say someone in a lab went, oh, my God, it's a completely new animal. because yeah, when- You know, they did that. They did that with that, that new chocolate. Ruby chocolate. Ruby chocolate. And you know what everybody did? They just stuck it on choc chip cookies. <laughs> <laughs> And they did the same thing with but it. But they didn't go weird and go like, all right, we're going to braise it with some owl meat and just go hard into a weird <laughs> field. Like, what? Is, like, do you ever get desperate to just kind of just pivot really hard and get people's attention? Do you ever just consider doing something really weird? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> but I, I don't have a TikTok, so I, I can't, I don't have an excuse to do the word. I literally, sometimes I come up with a, a very weird thing to do uh, and I go, I, I wouldn't write this in a recipe that's going to go in a national newspaper. I probably wouldn't do this on my show. I wouldn't do it in a YouTube video huh. and I wouldn't publish it in a cookbook. But if I had a TikTok, I'd do it on that. So I'm actually yeah. going to start a TikTok, I think. Not, not that I'm like Danny Glover. I'm getting too old for this shit, but I am going to start a TikTok just so I, I, I can scratch that itch for something that's weird. It's just you with a box cutter and an owl just going three in three easy steps. I'm going to ruin food for you. <laughs> it could be as simple as, you know, like you know, dipping McDonald's nuggets into KFC sweet and sour sauce, you know? I don't know if that's allowed in this country. No, I think they cancel yeah, each right. other out. I think, like, like, I think the laws of physics have a patent uh, pending thing and they will actually disappear if you try and cross the streams. But, I mean, <laughs> I do find it very interesting that you are so you are so online, Adam, in a really good way. I think you've really engaged with people God, online. Oh, I, God, I, I mean, <laughs> There's no such thing as being online in a good way. Mm. I mean, tell me about that. Okay, you've grown, but at the same time, I mean, this BuzzFeed list of your best tweets, is that weird being <laughs> kind of known for one thing and then accidentally or maybe even on purpose, straying into another field like that? One of the best things about social media for people that are in the public eye is that you have greater control over yourself. You know, you, you don't have to be what the TV network wants you to be or thinks that you are or, or wants to pigeonhole you at. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You can be whatever you want you can you can be yourself and, and i'm gonna get this wrong because i'm not a theologian but it, it, in a discussion that i had a while back 
nor am I Jewish, by the way. <laughs> in a discussion I had a while back with a rabbi, mm. he was talking about how in the Jewish faith, a person or a, a truth has, I think, I think the number was 37, could be 36. 36 sounds like a more, I guess, biblical kind of number. <laughs> Talmudical, I don't know how, what yeah. you describe it as. But there's 36 aspects to, I guess, a thing. And so if you are just looking at one side of it, you're missing 35 other sides. And to me, that was such an interesting thing because we kind of look at the world as a binary. You know, you're either with us or against us. or You're either LMP or Labor or, you know, there's all right or wrong, essentially. Mm. But mm. the idea that you could have 36 rights that are not, none of them are wrong, they're all just different sides of the same thing, mm. is something that really resonates with me in so many different aspects. You know, when when we went into the first lockdown, my kids were, like most kids in lockdown, going absolutely bananas. Yeah. And it wasn't until I realised, like, okay, these kids have, just to, to repeat the same number, 36 different personalities in the same way that I have 36 different personalities. You know, I, t- I talk to my wife differently to the, how I talk to my mum, and I talk to my friends differently to how I talk to my kids. You know, none of them are not me. Um, but they're different aspects of me. And so I, what I realized with my kids was that at school, they're the boss or they're the funny kid or they're the smart kid or whatever they happen to be. But at home, they're, they're just one side of their personality is just the kid and they're the youngest in the house. And so I realized that through that, they were, what they were missing is probably some independence and some ability to show the different social sides of themselves. And so we did, uh, you know, some parents might think it's a bit odd, but we just gave them a lot more freedom to do what they wanted to do. Mm. Um, so that I do have quite young kids, so they're eight and five, but we, you know, we give them a mobile phone and go, go explore the neighborhood and they'd wander around, they go to another park and, you know, they'll see a lot of kids from school at the park and having that ability to, to define themselves how they wanted to do it was you know, it was like flicking a switch. They went, they were immediately much better behaved. They were much uh, better rounded. And, and once again, to come back to the point that we were trying to make, sorry about this. No, that's fine. <laughs> I'm going to do this a lot. <laughs> it's great. Right? It's good. It's good. But um, for me, I, I think with with being extremely online, it, it does allow you to do to to sort of indulge the different compartments of yourself that you have, so you can be. Uh, you know, you can be more artistic on Instagram. You can try and be funny on Twitter or um, wh- whatever it happens to be. I think people contain multitudes and very rarely uh, in the past did they have the opportunity to actually um, indulge in those. But people contain multitudes and I completely agree. But I think it's – would you agree that it's possible for you to contain multitudes and feel good about expressing them and have, you know, sometimes conflicting viewpoints and, you're, you know, people are nuanced – the internet sometimes views people, like you said, in a very binary sense. So how does that kind of mesh? Like, how different is your online persona, i.e., you know, the real you, to your persona on, say, a cooking show? Uh, it's one of the 36, let's just say. <laughs> you know, but people have their moments. Sometimes they feel like being funny. Sometimes they, they want to be a shit poster. You know, whatever they happen to, to be, be doing. Like, I, I do think, I don't think. I don't think I'm being disingenuous okay. on any of those different mediums that I engage in. You know, the things that I post on Instagram are not things that are not my dinner. Like when I say mm. something to my dinner, it's actually what I'm having for dinner. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the, there's, I, I try to be as, 
I guess, honest as possible in every single interaction that I have, whether it is on a TV show or, you know, there are so many different aspects of this. Like, I I won't write a recipe the same way for a show like The Cook-Up than I would for a show like Destination Flavor, and I would write a recipe completely differently for, you know, I I have a couple of different columns for um, the Sydney Morning Herald in The Age and Sunday Life magazine, and even though, like, I'd I'd write a recipe differently if it's going out on a Sunday to how Mm. it would go out saying good food on a Tuesday. Mm. Mm. So it is, I guess there are so many different ways to cater for a different audience and cater for a different side of your own personality that I I think you can, I guess, uh, you can be all those things without it being disingenuous or or artificial. To me, that speaks to somebody who's very very aware and very empathetic to what people are going on going through in their day-to-day lives the fact that you're able to identify that what somebody's going to cook on a Sunday is very different to any other day of the week what limitations do you find when you're when you're putting yourself in the shoes of your audience or your your readers what are the the barriers that you know the the regular Aussie cook just will not will not be able to get over. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like a velociraptor at times from the first Jurassic Park, where you're kind of you're testing different parts of the fence to see what people are going to balk at, and it's stuff. That, there are things you know. I I don't have perfect insight into how people cook. Social media is brilliant in the sense that I do get feedback. Some good, <laughs> some bad <laughs> <laughs> uh, on on what people are resonate what people are resonating with, what people are not resonating with. Um, and so, and that is such a useful, if you have a thick enough skin, being online is fabulous because you get to see other people's perspective reflected back or, or unsolicited <laughs> at times as well yeah. on a range of issues that you would ordinarily not have insight into at all. You know, if you think about how a cooking show was made even 10 years ago, you know, someone had an idea, they did something, they broadcast it. And as soon as it got sent out into the ether, that was it. You know, yeah. you, you, you go start the next thing. You never got to see what, unless someone wrote a, a letter to the editor or something like that, you didn't see what anyone thought of it. You, you might have got some rating numbers, but you don't really have the insight into what was rating, why it was rating. You only have insight into what was rating. But these days, you know, down to that granular, like every single recipe level, I can see what people are thinking about it and what people respond to. I think to answer your question, Tegan, people like, I guess the idea of creativity when it comes to cooking, but they also like to feel comfortable. You know, there is a, there is a huge amount of, I think there's a lack of confidence that people have in the kitchen because they always think that other people are eating better than them or that they're not a good cook or they can only do three things and everyone else can cook all these amazing things. Most people cook three things, you know, Mm. I'd probably cook three things, maybe a few more, but if you go through what people are having for dinner in their own families, they, they, people would generally think that they're, level of cooking or they have a lot of insecurity around how well they're feeding their family they want the idea of doing more but they don't have the they don't feel anyway that they have the time or they have the the skill to be able to do that so i like to write recipes that will make someone feel not just uh creative but comfortable at the same time as well it's really interesting i'm thinking about my dad who will go overseas and will refuse to attempt to speak any foreign language not because he doesn't want to but because he's afraid he'll look stupid if he fucks up the pronunciation of a word right or (laughs) i won't dance in public i cannot dance it's well i'm sure i could learn but you mentioned um before that you you know uh weren't um jewish and we were talking about theology (laughs) and i think it's taoism that posits the idea of mastery through repetition 
repetition, right? And I was thinking about My Fair Lady and the idea that you could take some cockney, like, chimney sweep or whatever and in two weeks transform them, My Fair Lady style, into a competent <laughs> chef, right? Do you think you... I mean, first of all, I don't think you think it's your job to educate. I think it's about, you know, it should be a joyous process. But do you think with Push Came to Shove, you could take anyone, right, under the right circumstances if they're willing and actually just get them that good? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Cooking is the easiest thing in the world. I think it was Thomas Keller from Per Se in California who says, you know, that the actual physical aspects of cooking Mm. is probably the easiest skill you could ever learn. Like, imagine (laughs) trying to play the guitar, which I'm trying to do at the moment, is multitudes more difficult than picking up a knife and chopping something or putting something into a pan and then taking it out at another point. You know, there is nothing that is physically very difficult in cooking. Um, So it it is almost an entirely mental skill and i think you know if you if it's it's part art part science and i think we don't most people don't understand the science cooking as well as they should um but then there's also this this overlay of culture that goes over it and and people are very loath to challenge culture for for better or worse and so that's the the impediments or the barriers that we put in place uh are entirely self-inflicted when it comes to cooking it's not like I can chop really fast and therefore I'm a good cook. You know, you can make uh, one of the, some of the guests that we've had on the show, uh, in, in terms of technical proficiency, not great cooks, but their food tastes amazing and mm. constantly tastes amazing because they understand, I guess, that that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make the food taste good. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's not like an oven gets hotter based on your physical strength or athletic prowess. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like how small you are dictates how good this show Exactly. I was going to say, you mentioned skating before, and I find that so interesting, and guitar playing, right? These are things mm. that, I mean, technically speaking, you can just practice, 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 right? Yeah. But there are some things people are naturally better at. So you don't think some people are naturally more... It's not like rhythm, right? Or, you know, there's people who uh, will never be able to sing, right? Like there is there is a tone deafness. And I sometimes look at friends of mine who are like fussy eaters or whatever, and I think, you are never going to be good in the kitchen. Do you think that is a self-imposed kind of shortcoming? Like, do you think they could overcome those things? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, the... the I, I, I guess, I, I don't know where cooking intuition comes from. I, I suspect it just comes from enjoying eating food. Um, but I, I, and I think if you're talking about people who are good cooks versus people who are not so good cooks, I think you'll find that they appreciate food very differently rather than grew up, you know, being exposed to it or whatever. You know, there are a lot of people who are fabulous cooks, uh, who just didn't grow up eating great food at all. But I think the appreciation of food is probably the strongest determiner of whether someone can cook well. So it's not that you are born, you know, being exposed to 400 types of food. It's more that you just really like food and kind of want to try Well, things. I mean, look at you. You grew up in a household where the food was incredible, Paul. My mum's tuna mornay could, I mean, that was not something that would have fostered a love of food. No, that could <laughs> that could hold off an army. That stuff's very, that's a very sturdy dish. Yeah, but it was a sturdy and unnecessary moment in my life. But you're very adventurous. You Thank know. you. Well, I, you know, I really like eating. But just looking ahead again, Adam, at some of these new shows that you've got coming out, as you've said, you you approach all of these things really differently. So, for something like Good Food Kitchen, what can people expect? for this show how should viewers approach it the thing i like about so i i produced good food kitchen as well as being being a part of it and the way that we conceptualized it was trying to take people behind 
this the process of putting together you know good food is it's a magazine it's a website it's uh, a weekly lift out in the newspaper and there's a lot that goes into that from i guess the recipe development through the actual cooking and the testing and um down to the photography and styling and so we do try and take people kind of behind the scenes of that so it is again we try and do it as as faithfully as possible obviously it's still a tv show so it's not uh, exactly the way it happens so i don't <laughs> there's no angry editors emailing me because i've missed deadline again <laughs> or anything like that but you know the, the photographer that we show in the show is the f- actual photographer that photographs all of my dishes uh, for good food and the stylist is the the actual stylist who does all of that and the recipes that we're cooking and the the the, the actual kind of ones that we would do for the show so it was just this this um idea of giving people a little bit more than a cooking show it's kind of good food is a trusted brand in i guess the australian cooking landscape and trying to get people to kind of have a look at how that comes together that's brilliant i'm gonna love the shit out of that one (laughs) (laughs) you kind of sound like you can't i mean we're sitting here kind of talking about all your accomplishments and you know um when you eventually do learn everything about cooking and release your 50th show adam's (laughs) cooking singularity that's that's gonna be great but I'm just curious as to whether there's anything you can't do because I mean, have you to make you feel better? No, I'm trying to. No, (laughs) what I'm trying to do is I think people do feel slightly like cooking can be a little bit inaccessible, and I think what helps humanize uh, these these you know people who do this amazing stuff is finding out that they are just as fallible as you are. So I'm curious, Adam, as to whether you have ever truly screwed the pooch in the kitchen. I mean, what's like what's your biggest (sighs) mistake that you've ever made? Like high stakes stuff. Yeah, it happens. You know, I remember my dad came home from the butchers and. This is when tomahawk steaks were, um, you know, really having their moment in the sun. Not that the, the, they're not now. I still don't mind one, but um, so tomahawk is basically the a, a very large Scotch fillet, uh, usually still attached to a bone that gives a long bone that gives it this kind of big tomahawk shape. So um, he brought home this you know, two hundred dollar steak, and he was the proudest it had ever been. And and at that time, there was this thing called reverse sear. That was kind of all the rage, and it was well. It's not particularly new. It was it was the idea that you cook a piece of meat and then you sear it after, rather mm-hmm. than searing it before and, and cooking after. If you look at the history of cooking, actually, that's a very old style of cooking that only changed through the intervention of Escoffier and uh, Eustace von Liebig, who invented the Liebig condenser. But I digress. <laughs> So I, he, my dad gave me this very expensive steak, uh, to cook and I was like, oh, I'm going to do this, this fancy, uh, reverse sear technique, which involves, you know, cooking it in an oven first with a, a thermometer to, so you get the exact temperature, similar to sous vide, I guess, just without the, the vacuum. And then you sear it afterwards. And, and I don't know why, but it, I completely screwed it up. And this, this very expensive steak that my dad was looking forward to for the hours that it took to get ready was, tough as a board no. and completely well done all the way through and i i was uh distraught at it because i i was similarly looking forward to it as well but i, I guess when it comes to uh, you know i i, I try to tell my kid my kids are, are, are big on the i can't do it kind of thing and i and i'm not a tiger dad by any stretch of the imagination but one philosophy that i've tried to live by myself is that i just i don't assume that i can't do something just because i've never done it before you know, I'll give it a go. And so there are, there are things, trust me, there are things that I'm not particularly good at. I'm not a very fast runner. <laughs> in a straight line anyway. You know, I'm pretty agile, but not in a straight line. Right, right, right. Duck and weave. But, yeah, just, just duck and weave. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I truly don't think that you can say that you're 
not good at something unless you've given it a go and actually suck at it. Yeah, but I, I think that that's, you know, that's really clear in your career trajectory in that you are the sort of person who, yeah, just gives things a go and seems to seems to do terribly well with a lot of the things that you do try, but it is nice knowing that come the Olympics next, <laughs> whatever it's going to be, Paris, that we will not see you there sprinting. That is one thing that we can go out of the I will not be doing. Well, now we've got breakdancing. You can give breakdancing a shot, right? Have you- skateboarding. <laughs> yeah, the 43-year-old me going up against a 13-year-old in, in, the, in the skateboarding, I'm sure. <laughs> a 39-year-old woman who started karate about a year and a half before the, the Olympics won gold uh, this year. Did she start a year and a half before the Olympics? I think it was two years. This is a Spanish woman? Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah, because I've I've started karate, Adam. Like really, I went in the deep end. Um, wow! And I'm 38, and I just went hard, and I didn't think I could, and I did it, and it's great. But the the, the point is, a 39 year old woman who started two years ago won gold at um, at the Olympics in karate. So you can just you know just I guess what I'm saying is get your goddamn skates on. <laughs> well, look, we're we're on this island now, and obviously part of the whole deal of coming to this island is that you can you have to bring a dish with you. You can bring your desert island dish. It's the only dish. You can sorry. How would you how would you phrase this premise? Well, to? it's the only. It's just the show you've been doing for weeks ah, on shit. end, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is the one dish that you will eat for the rest of eternity. Um, and as somebody who has such an extensive repertoire, I'm sure that this is a really really difficult question for you. But Adam, we've got to ask. What is your desert island dish? Can I tell you that we had this as a theme on the cook-up? I don't think the episode's gone to air yet. Oh, crap. Um, And we had this same discussion (laughs) about, you know, how do you define a desert island dish? Mm. And I said, don't define it. You know, just let people, you know, just say that the theme is desert island dish and we'll let our guests cook whatever it is that they think that is their desert island dish. And so we had Christina Anu on and she made cassava cake because... She was born in the Torres Strait, and there was a time where, uh, and I don't know why I'm laughing at this, but they were cut off from, because of storms and things, they were cut off from- It's not uh, funny at all. Jesus. No, no it, it isn't. Cut, cut off from deliveries from the mainland. And so oh. for a number of months when she was a kid, all she had to eat was cassava, and so she made this cassava cake. Um, it was delicious. You know, It certainly wasn't something that was that, that spoke of uh, not being able to get ingredients because it was, it was lovely. But she made that. We had the actor Remy He. On as well, and he made like a cheese toasty with kimchi because he thought that his interpretation was that it was not going to be, um, there weren't going to be many ingredients, so he'd just do stuff that <laughs> you'd have lying around, like right. kimchi and bread and cheese. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was really interesting to see how, how that was interpreted. So, uh, um, I guess for me, my understanding of Desert Island Dish is something that, you know, I would want to eat. For the rest of my life. Yes. And so my view on that is uh, Hainanese chicken rice. It's my favorite dish. No way. Yeah. But this is, oh, this is wild. This is the first time we've had a double up on the island. Oh, my God. Melissa Leong uh, cooked her her family Hainanese chicken rice, and that was her recipe. And (laughs) And now you guys are going to have to battle it out on the island. So, Melissa Leong is also trapped here on our island with us. Um, she came, she was like our fourth person that we kidnapped. She's been here for a while. She's, <laughs> she's been here for a while. She's, she's got a beard. She's gone full Tom Hanks. She's got a beard and a volleyball covered in blood. Right. It's pretty weird. <laughs> yeah. And she also brought her recipe. So, I would love to hear how you make your version of Hainanese chicken rice. Well, it is a dish that's best shared. So, I'm very happy to share it with, with the likes of Melissa, who is, who is fabulous. Um, my, the, the way that mine is made, I guess, 
changes a lot. So this is a dish that I've grown up with essentially from the beginning. You know, my grandfather is from Hainan. Uh, my grandmother has been making Hainanese chicken rice literally since I was born, well, from long before I was born. Um, and so the two sides of my family, which are, I guess, Chinese and Chinese-Malaysian and then sort of Singaporean, um, combine in this dish in many ways. Um, historically, so my grandfather is from uh, a place in English that you'd call Little Bear Village, uh, which is about 20 minutes away from uh, an area called Wenchang, which is where... Uh, the inspiration for Hainanese chicken rice came from. So mm. there's a, a type of chicken called a, a, a Wenchang chicken that's fed on specific, uh, a specific dietary regime. It's kind of the, 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 the Hainanese version of Wagyu, but for chicken. And, and so that's the origins of Hainanese chicken rice. And so on Hainan, Hainanese chicken rice doesn't exist, or it does now because they've kind of reappropriated it back into Hainanese cuisine. But it was this Wenchang chicken that was the the origins of that. Just a very simple, good quality, extremely good quality chicken that's boiled. Uh, usually, it's a capon, so a, which is a um, a rooster, a young rooster that has been castrated. Uh, we obviously don't castrate chickens anymore in most of the, most countries. Um, but when Hainanese chicken rice, when Wenchang chicken came to Malaysia, when Hainanese people came to Malaysia, um, it became this dish called Hainanese chicken rice, which is, um, I, I guess, poached chicken that then has uh, the fat rendered from it, or usually the fat's rendered first. Poach the chicken, fry the rice in the fat from the chicken with some garlic and onion and things, and then... Uh, cook the rice with the stock that you poach the chicken in. So it's, to me, it's this really kind of philosophical dish where you are making use of every aspect of it. You're creating something from very, very simple ingredients. You know, one chicken, a couple of cups of rice, uh, and some sauces and things to go on along the outside. Um, that kind of makes the best use of, of ingredient. Uh, so when my family came from Hainan to the, the Straits region, part of them went, some of them went to Malaysia, some of them went to Singapore, and then I did a series in Singapore years later where I went to, um, so well, technically he's my cousin, but he, he's in his 70s, you know, cousin because he was the same generation of the family, and he ran a Hainanese chicken rice stall for, you know, 50 years before he oh. retired. So um, my way of making it's kind of a, a, a blend of the way my grandma taught me to make it, the way my uh, cousin made it. Uh, and then, you know, then I went back to my ancestral village in Hainan and made it there as well with with the actual Wenchang chicken oh. that is a, um, for another series I did on China. And so then I saw sort of differences in how they're doing it in Hainan, like in in. The Liao village is like, it's called Little Bear Village, but 95% of the people live, that live there are, the, are my family. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's kind of, it's kind of a blend. I, I think probably if Melissa was making it, she'd be making hers a bit more Singaporean style, but mine's a bit more blended. That's amazing. And I'm assuming then that when this episode of the cook up comes out, that we'll get to see you making this dish. Is that correct? Nah. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I did like a fish dish, like because the other two guests were treating the, the the theme as like what what ingredients would you have on a desert island? I did like a, a fish and coconut dish, um, that uh, was actually inspired a little bit by Jimmy Barnes. Oh. Who you should get on this island too, because um, 
you know, he he made a fried fish uh, that I thought was absolutely delicious. So I did this sort of coconut fish dish that um, that just so that I I didn't you know when you have guests that come into your kitchen, you don't want to say that they're they've got the theme wrong you know so if, <laughs> if i'm doing my dish that i want to eat for the rest of my life and and you know remy's making a a, a toasted cheese sandwich and and um christina's talking about the the lean times when she was growing up on the torres strait and they were cut off from the mainland i, I didn't want to kind of reinterpret the theme <laughs> yeah. back to See, how Paul, I wanted to. you could learn about this adam uh one of our guests sean redgrave who you may know she was the the winner of a Great Australian Bake Off the mm. first season here. She brought a bag of flour because that was her interpretation of the Desert Island dish because she could make so much from said bag of flour. And, Paul, you shamed her. You shamed her so badly. I flipped my shit because she basically <laughs> broke the rules. She was like, I can cook. I, as a result, I can cook anything that involves flour. I'm like, no, that's not how it works. So everyone, everyone I mean, Celia Bacola wanted to bring an entire Australian small town bakery where she could get a salad roll. And we, and we had to go seals. You need to just pick up the from the bakery but just imagine that this is like you just every day wake up and this dish is there i mean with those parameters in mind you're on an island you're under a palm tree you know are are you happy with this dish every day adam absolutely absolutely well it just seems to be such a perfect dish for you because it just makes sense and one of the things we've loved about watching you so much lately uh is that just you do you make sense and you say things that are so obvious uh one of the points that you that you made on on your show the cook up was just instead of buying separate pieces of chicken just buy a chicken and cut it up so obvious and it just makes sense and last night uh we were watching the show again and you taught us how to season a wok which has been scaring me and it's been (laughs) intimidating me for years now and it was like oh look you made it easy you just you you just make things work in in my head and i'm just so appreciative that you welcome us into your kitchen again and again Oh, well, thank you. When you're seasoning your wok, don't put too much oil in. Every time people send me photos of their woks that they've seasoned, they've used too much oil. So really don't put too much oil in. I'd like to see you combine the two things and I'd like to cut to a proper half pipe down the road from us and see you seasoning the half pipe. Just, the, you know, those, <laughs> just getting it ready for your Olympic bid. <laughs> thank you so much. This is a, it's it's a really big deal in that I think two of our most expert foodies have both brought the same dish it's super I think that, it's weird it's really weird but it's, think... it's also perfectly on point because you were talking about tradition and the fact that you know there's only so many dishes the fact that two people on the same island have made the same dish in such different ways is you know it's really nice it is absolutely it's, it's lovely an iconic dish for the for those of us who come from that part of the world it's, it's an iconic dish but i i actually would say if you if we made my version of honey and chicken rice and put it next to melissa's they would be quite different because there's a lot of different regional variations melissa being from from Singapore, they tend to use a, a bit more sort of uh, black sauce, as, as they would call it, mm. on there as well. And, and um, yeah, they're all, they're, there's many different variations for a dish that is really only sort of 100 years old. Well, in the future, another television show where the same dish cooked by different people from slightly different regions, I would... I would enjoy that one too. Unless you're already making that next month. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea though. That, that, that would be a fascinating Anyway. Well, it's been so lovely to talk with you. Thank you so, so much for your time. And we can't wait to just watch even more of your wonderful shows when they come out in the future. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Thanks for, thanks for having me on the Desert Island. Well, that was a bloody treat, wasn't it? He 
is so much more thoughtful and he's deep. He's so much deeper than I thought he was going to be. Not that he doesn't come across as very intelligent and deep on his show, but it's like, oh, I've actually got some stuff to really ponder and, you know, chew on now. Yeah, he's the Obi-Wan Kenobi of food. Yes, he's the Obi-Wan Kenobi of food. He just rocks up, teaches you life lessons, and then waves his hand and disappears. He's amazing. And also I've seen him move kitchen implements with his mind, so there's that. Anyway, we hope you enjoyed the episode. We had such a great time talking with Adam, and we've had such a great time talking with each other. Clearly now we have to actually go off and try cooking Hainanese chicken rice. I think the fact that two of the leading food personalities in the country have both gone, that is the one thing I want to eat for the rest of time. I mean, that is crazy, Paul. This must be the best thing on earth. I think given the trend, I think in about five or six episodes, we're going to have a future guest pitch like a third variation of Hainanese chicken rice. We're going to have to call this, we're going to have to rebrand this Hainanese (laughs) chicken rice island in about 10 weeks. Not another rebrand. Oh my God. Well, look, for now, we're going to give that recipe a go. Also, exciting news, my ice cream mixing bowl, my KitchenAid attachment Mm -hmm. arrived Mm -hmm. yesterday. Yep. The Darren is here now. (laughs) Oh, the Darren. Darren. I'm going to get it like uh, a label put on the side. You know how you get B-52 bombers during the war had like a sexy lady and a name on the side. Yes. Yeah, we'll get that done, but it's going to be Darren Hayes in a beautiful one piece kind of saluting or something. Oh, that yeah. would be amazing. We're also going to hopefully start making our own ice cream soon. Mm. We'll report back in and let you know how we go. But for now, thanks for being here and for listening to another episode. We just really appreciate you tuning in each week. We have changed the brand, but it's the same taste you've grown accustomed to. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for listening to Dish Island. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Dish Island. Dish Island is a proud member of the ACAST Creator Network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.